we have done a lot of forecast analysis as, as have many other institutions. And our conclusions, which I have shared uh, with British public opinions, not too much uh, success, was that the outcome would not be a very happy story for the British people. Christine Lagarde is Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund. She spoke in late June at the Aspen Ideas Festival, three days after the historic Brexit decision. She says the choice by British voters to leave the European Union is heartbreaking. This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. We bring you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. Lagarde was interviewed by Jane Harmon as part of the opening session of the festival that wrapped up July 2nd. Harmon is president of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. She's also a trustee of the Aspen Institute. Before Lagarde took over the IMF, she served in the French government, mostly as finance and economy minister. She's a lawyer by trade. Here is her conversation with Jane Harmon. Christine Lagarde is a dearest friend. I'm totally objective when I say she's one of the most admired women on the planet. Do we agree? She was just elected unanimously, get that, to her second five-year term as the director of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the first woman to hold that position. She also was the first woman to be finance minister of a G7 country. She also was uh, the first woman to chair a major international law firm. Not bad. Um, so the markets are opening in Asia. I believe I'm correct. And uh, there are Rexperts everywhere. <laughs> Good new word. I read it. I didn't make it up. Uh, who are saying catastrophe... Uh, the UK will fall, the EU will fall, um, the UK has opportunities, the EU has opportunities, these countries will leave, so on and so forth. The markets obviously were down on Friday. Uh, my first question to you, my friend, is, is Brexit a catastrophe or an opportunity or both? <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Jane, for this easy one. Um... <laughs> And uh, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, on behalf of uh, my husband and myself, I'd like to really thank the, uh, the Aspen community. Uh, we've been here for less than 48 hours and we've only met lovely, nice, warm-hearted, welcoming, uh, hospitable people, not to mention, of course, uh, Jane and, and, and Bob, uh, my friends. But really, thank you so much. It feels so good to be here. Jane, what I, I thought I would do is just start with a few, a few numbers and a few um, put things in, in perspective a little bit because there is a lot of, uh, a lot of either short memories or, or, or rush to a few uh, conclusions, which I think is, uh, is, is not necessarily the wisest thing to do at the moment. So looking at numbers a little bit, uh, I think we have to keep in mind uh, that the European Union, which started being constructed over 50 years ago, uh, represents roughly 500 million people and is the largest free market economic zone in the world. That's what the UK is considering at the moment. The UK itself uh, is a country with over 60 million people 
uh, GDP per capita at around 45,000. Uh, a pretty good track record of economic policy uh, in the last few years, uh, with an unemployment down at about 5%, uh, growth ranging from 2.2 to uh, 1.9 and, and up, and uh, you know public finances that have been largely re-established and a good direction in terms of debt to GDP. So that's the, uh, the economic situation of that country at the moment. And I'm saying that with a particular purpose, which will be, as you will understand, the questions that I have at the end of my quick uh, look around. Second set of facts which I think are important is that um, on Friday, uh, as we all sort of woke up to this news, which was um, heartbreaking for those of us who are truly Europeans, and certainly it was very much my sentiment as, as a European, but when we woke up, uh, we realized that first of all, the markets had vastly underestimated the outcome. And contrary to what I hear all the time from my teams, uh, which is essentially markets usually get it pretty right and anticipate reasonably well, on this particular occasion, whether it was uh, the bookmaker or the markets, that was not anticipated uh, very much, which will explain something that I will say in, in, in a minute. That's point number one. Point number two, it might just be the case that the experts much criticized, including by uh, Justice Minister Gov, uh, they just might be right. And it's not necessarily going to be uh, the best news in the world. Mm. Third, on that Friday, in the course of the day, there was no panic, right? And despite the fact that markets had not anticipated that vote, and therefore had priced in asset values and other currency values, the fact that the UK would probably remain, which led to a nice increase on the markets in the days preceding the referendum. Well, despite that, there was no panic. There was a violent, brutal, immediate, massive move. You know, the, the, the pound went down by 10%, caught up a little bit later on in the day. Uh, the valuations, you know, went down in many corners, and some people lost a lot of money, other people made a lot of money, as is often the case when there is massive volatility. But there was no panic, and the central bankers did the job that they were prepared to do just in case, which was to put a lot of liquidity on the markets so that there would not be shortage of liquidity and no sort of fading away of those liquidity, liquidities as we saw it in, on previous occasions, particularly in 2008. So that's the first take. You know, central bankers did their job. All groupings, organizations, eminent uh, policymakers came out publicly along the same lines of trying to reassure uh, that the situation was under control, and it was very much under control. We didn't see uh, those sort of panic move. Now, having said that, Clearly, what we are facing in terms of, and I'm coming to uh, your question, risk opportunities or threats opportunities, I think needs to be distinguished in terms of short term, uh, longer term. And we have done a lot of forecasts, analysis, as, as have many other institutions. And our conclusions, which I have shared uh, with British public opinions, not too much uh, success, was that the outcome 
would not be a very happy story for the British people, both in terms of trade declining, in terms of productivity probably declining, in terms of income, in terms of inflation, and so on and so forth. But very much of that outcome, which is not terribly precisely predictable, is going to depend on the level of certainty or uncertainty, predictability or lack of predictability. People going in a risk-off mode or considering that the situation is going to settle back or not. So I think that at this point in time, policymakers both in the UK and in Europe are holding that level of uncertainty in their hands. And how they come out in the next few days is going to really drive the direction in which risk will go. Now, we are hearing at the moment, and I'm not inventing it, uh, different statements going a little bit in many directions. There is uncertainty in the political party situation in the UK, both in the Labour and in the Conservative Party. There is a timetable that has been announced under which this referendum, which was legally of an advisory value, is leading to the resignation of the Prime Minister, which will only be effective at the time when he's actually replaced by his successor, who will be appointed by the Conservative meeting, which will take place probably after uh, the holiday which will be in the course of September. So early October, we will know who is the uh, next leader of the Conservative Party. And in the meantime, Prime Minister Cameron has indicated that he was not going to trigger this famous Article 50 of the European Treaty, which provides for the terms under which uh, withdrawal can be actually notified and organized. But there has been no withdrawal from the European Union, except some 30 years ago by Groenland, which left from Denmark, literally, there is no precedent. There is no real history of how these things happen. So certainly from our perspective as the IMF, we have very strongly encouraged and will continue to encourage the parties involved to actually proceed with this transition in the most efficient, predictable way in order to reduce the level of uncertainty which will itself determine the level of risk that we are facing. Having said that, in the long term, if the decision was maintained and if the leave is effectively followed through by a withdrawal from the United Kingdom, there is no doubt that it will have an economic impact on that economy and it will have also an economic impact on growth in the European Union. So policymakers are going to be in high demand to come in the most cohesive, concerted, and hopefully positive way in response to the situation. Yeah. Final point, and I think this is something that does not apply only to the UK and the European Union and the uh, Euro area, is why, and I think those are the questions that will come to the fore, not just in the UK, but why is it that the populist voices, sometimes based on so-called truth that they now have to retract, why is it that those voices carried a lot more and a lot further than the voices of quote-unquote experts 
who were largely unanimous about the outcome and consequences of the decision. That's a big question to ask. Is it an issue of the economic outcome? Is it an issue of the democratic process? Is it an issue of the communication channels? But all those questions, I think, are on the table and warrant everybody's attention. Well, there's another dimension to that. Um, for those of you, and you're all junkies, so you all know this, uh, who have studied how the vote went, millennials, uh, by a large amount, voted uh, to remain. And here's uh, just a summary of a post that many of you probably have seen, which has gone viral, uh, by somebody named Nicholas. He said, the Brexit vote is three tragedies. First, the working classes who voted to leave will be hurt the most. Second, the younger generation will have never known the full extent of lost opportunities. And he says, literally, freedom of movement was taken away by our parents, uncles and grandparents in, in a blow to a generation already drowning in the deaths of our predecessors. And his third point, which is searing, is that we now live in a post-factual democracy. That's exactly what you said, Christine. And he asks, when was the last time a prevailing culture of anti-intellectualism led to anything other than bigotry? So, after you've absorbed that, there's a lot of buyer's remorse out there. Three and a half million people have signed a petition to hold another referendum. Given the fact that the uh, the formal exit isn't triggered. Do you think there's any chance that uh, Can't You Take a Joke will be <laughs> operative? You know, it's, 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 it's really hard to speculate, but, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the sleepy lawyer wakes up inside myself. Um, and I'm still asleep, my lawyer. <laughs> But, I, you know, I, I don't think that it's, it's there. Although, you could argue that um, with an advisory capacity and the sort of general uncertainty about the timeline, about the triggering point, about the two years time frame within which negotiations uh, must be conducted, there is room for um, Revision, but I, I just don't see it personally, and I, you know, I certainly don't want to be quoted on on, on that because it's it's very much in the up in the air, and it's and it's by the way, it's for the UK to actually decide for itself at the end of the day, and they are that country is the only country that can actually trigger the mechanism, right? No matter how much uh, the uh, EU leaders insist on it being conducted very uh, diligently. It is the UK that can trigger the Article 50. Let me ask you about leadership in the context of Brexit. Uh, you've mentioned the need for a steady hand. But the World Post, uh, which is part of the Huffington Post, something that I think is a very good uh, piece of journalism, wrote yesterday that there are only two compelling leaders in the world, the Pope and Yo-Yo Ma. <laughs> and I'm actually uh, very partial to Yo-Yo Ma since he was once the Harmon Eisner Artist-in-Residence at the Aspen Institute and a, a dear friend. But who could lead uh, Europe through this? What steady hand is in Europe? Uh, Angela Merkel comes to mind. So do you. Um <laughs> Uh, Angela Merkel comes to my mind for sure. Uh, 
but you see, I think on, on this occasion, uh, it's, it's going to require concerted efforts on the part of, of, of many. And it's not going to, to be, and I don't think that it can ever be, uh, just one single uh, leader takes it all, drives it all. Uh, it's, it's, it's too multifaceted to be just the work of one single person. And whoever will be driving that bus will actually need to have all the, uh, all the passengers on board in order to move forward. Uh, Europe is, is an incredible construction, much criticized, um, much too slow, very laborious on occasions, but it's also an extraordinary uh, achievement of the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, where countries had been at each other's throat and, uh, and millions of people had died at the hands of each other for centuries. And to actually decide that in the name of peace and prosperity, they were going to establish that free market zone where product services and people can actually move uh, is something that should not be wasted at all. And, uh, right. but it is, and it is a resilient um, construction and a resilient territory, which is unfinished and which needs to be completed. It's facing a lot of hardship, let's face it. Uh, if you combine the, um, you know, the legacy of the financial crisis, which is still out there in, in some corners, uh, you look at the ter terrorist attacks, which has, it has been right. the victim of in the last uh, year and a half. If you look at the refugees inflow, which is, you know, arriving on the shores of, uh, of many of the southern countries and moving up uh, all the way to Sweden. Uh, and if you now take this uh, first ever attempt to withdraw when the whole process was about integration, was about coming together, uh, it's a lot to take for a construction that was not, you know, uh, inherited from the Westphalia Treaty, uh, but something that was, uh, you know, only the Second World War construction. But uh, it, it will take more than one person, uh, but it will take certainly somebody who has the ability to bring together uh, people with, for, for the moment, uh, very different vested interests. Well, you mentioned terrorism, and that's my last uh, Brexit question. It occurs to me that, to quote uh, Jerry Ford, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And as people are preoccupied with this, as everyone should be, certainly in Europe, um, and I think uh, no matter what Donald Trump says, I think this is a matter of great interest for the United States as well, um, there are prepositioned foreign fighters in Europe. And there is Vladimir Putin um, up north uh, who has already made excursions into Ukraine and, and is um, at least many NATO countries fear what else he might do. While Europe is focused on this, would this be, unfortunately, a good opportunity for some of those folks who think attention is being paid elsewhere to conduct mischief? I pray that is, is not the case. I really do. I really do. Yeah. But, you know, I, there is certainly a, a great level of integration at the economic level that needs to be perfected, that needs to be completed. Uh, I think that in terms of security, there has to be uh, you know, further work and, and more in-depth work to be done within the European Union. Well, Christine, turning to a few other subjects, and then we'll get to audience questions. Uh, you were recently in Japan for a meeting at the G7. Uh, every time I check, because I do get these texts from you and invite you to dinner, you're in Kazakhstan or you're going to uh, uh, somewhere, but you have uh, been focusing, I know, in addition to Kazakhstan, literally, on Ukraine, Iraq, Egypt, um, endemic corruption is a huge concern of yours. Uh, just a few words about other things you are doing or you will be doing while you are also 
uh, in this position managing or helping to manage the Brexit crisis? Thank you to ask me that question because I have to look at you know the future and look at, at as positively as I can. Um, in my first few years, I tried to shift a little bit together with the management team, the IMF in the direction that was a bit unconventional and not especially orthodox. Uh, we have uh, really focused on some alternative topics that are macro-critical all the same, but that include the likes of climate change, what do we do about it? Empowerment of women, what do we do about it? Financial inclusion, what do we do about it? Excessive inequality, what impact does it have on growth? And those are areas that I think actually matter enormously, not only for macroeconomic purposes, not only to have a good and solid uh, set of, of uh, fiscal principles, but also because they actually bring the level of, hopefully, more security, more inclusion, less inequality that actually repair or uh, support and, and, and strengthen uh, the, uh, the chemistry of societies. And, and this is particularly relevant at this point in time, because I think that some of the answers, some of the analysis in relation to these topics are critical for people. Uh, I don't think that we have communicated well enough or clearly enough uh, leaving aside the jargon that economists and, and, and others use, but I think that I would like to continue to push the institution in that direction. Our focus is economy. Our focus is stability. And I think those are the basic principles upon which societies can actually prosper and, and, and be developed. But it can only be done on, on solid pillars and with the principle of inclusion being first and foremost. And it's in that, with that concern in mind that I, I believe that the work we have begun doing on corruption is, is very important. Uh, how much re corruption represents in the world? Anywhere between 1.5 and $2 trillion. How many countries are concerned? Many. And not just the odd country down, down south, in this sort of low-income development country. Who are the victims? Generally, the most exposed people. Can it be fixed? Yes. Will it take time? Yes. Will it require cohesion and leadership? Yes, of course. Will the transition from an economic point of view need careful analysis and, and policy advice? Absolutely. You don't go from a, a nicely oiled system that is built on bribes and rigged procurement contracts to something that is transparent and where people are accountable without a degree of transition. So those are some of the areas that I would like to continue to push along with, with exceptional quality of research and, and, uh, and service to the membership. My final question is, uh, growing up in France, where you were a synchronized swimmer, and going to the United States for a year, I think, at Holton Arms and being an intern for then-Congressman Bill Cohen, uh, then uh, this uh, school and, and teaching and this vaunted law career, did you ever imagine that you would be here now in your second term as the director of the IMF? No. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Nor did I plan for that, actually, ever. Uh, but no. <laughs> Well, all I can say is, aren't we glad she's there? So, 
So questions, and one I, I would like to call on Kitty Boone, whether she wants to be called on or not. I hope she's here. She's there uh, because Kitty has come up with, a, I think, a great idea about Greece, and I think you ought to put it to uh, Chris. I'll take any of those. Okay, oh, here's not. my idea, but it's, I don't know how to turn it into a question, but maybe you can say, does this make sense? Is it possible? The Greek economy is a disaster. The debt now is a huge question. Rio for the Olympic Games is a disaster. The IOC, the way they make decisions, is really complicated. Could we please permanently install the Olympic Games in their home in Athens? <coughs> and give economy and tourism and strength and have one place that's environmentally safe. You don't have to build stadiums that have dust weeds after, right after the day and help Greece and help the world find a place in Europe that is a legitimate home for the Olympic Games. That's my question. No, I, I think it's a great, great out-of-the-box idea. Thank you, Casey. Thank you. Um, you know, to the extent that it's going to create demand, which is what uh, this economy absolutely needs, uh, it, it would be great. How you combine the sort of single location uh, with the multilateral, multi-country, uh, extraordinary um, sort of appeal that the Olympics can have uh, to many countries around the world is something that needs to be thought through. Uh, how you could have a good governing body that would actually supervise, make sure that there is transparency, there is accountability, there is no, you know, funny business uh, as is as occurred in the past in some places. Uh, I think that might, but it's a very interesting idea. And you're right, uh, the marathon was run the first time ever in Greece, and the Olympic is only called the Olympic because of the Olympic, uh, the Olymp, uh, which is actually uh, sitting in Greece and which has hosted so many, so many. Uh, fantastic athletes, uh, which was part of the men's sana incorpore sano um, principles that the Greeks very much had. Huh. Yeah. So Kitty has the first big idea of the afternoon. <laughs> Other questions? Bob Abernathy, thank you for being here with us. You said a minute ago that much work needs to be done in security uh, in Europe. Uh, what would you set for an agenda for the meeting in Warsaw next month? I'm totally out of my depth on that one. So I don't pretend to, uh, to have any, any um, recommendations or any lessons uh, to those who are in the know. But, uh, you know, when I was on, on, in November in Paris uh, at the time of the, uh, the attack on Bataclan, uh, I walked the streets of Washington, uh, Je suis Charlie, and uh, all, I, all I can tell is that... Um, it's going to require concerted efforts and uh, at, at all levels of our organizations, societies, uh, and not just at the uh, police and intelligence levels. I think people have to be uh, adopting a different view about security themselves. The, the meeting in Warsaw is a meeting of NATO uh, members, uh, for those who don't know. Questions? My name is Erundu Juchisom. I am Pearson Scholar. I'm originally from Nigeria. In January, you visited my home country, and um, you said uh, you advise the Nigerian government to act with resolve, build resilience, and exercise restraint. These are your three words. And with, uh, with breathing, leaving the EU, 
as an emerging economy that solely depends on oil, and most of our stock is tied with pounds, tied with dollars, what advice do you have for an emerging economy such as Nigeria and other African countries who are battling with climate change, battling with uh, migration crisis and other things? Good Thank question. you. Well, first of all, I, what I can tell you um, is that I was very, very pleased to see the, uh, the exchange rate new policy that has been decided by the Central Bank of Nigeria. And I'm delighted that President Buhari has um, agreed to that uh, change as being part of the overall Nigerian policy. I think it's, it's a move in the right direction. Uh, clearly, your country is a massive producer of oil. It's not the only, contrary to some other countries that I visited earlier, as you, as you mentioned, uh, Jane, it's a country that actually has other sources of growth that is far more diversified, but where resources are predominantly, uh, particularly the revenue for the, uh, the state of Nigeria from oil. The fact that it's heading in the direction of a more flexible exchange rate, I think is so wise uh, and, and so much uh, better than what uh, there was before. So I think on that front, the country is heading in the right direction. Diversification of sources of growth is a critical one. And I think the fight against corruption is something that President Buhari himself, who was present at the London summit against corruption, has devoted his energy and, uh, and efforts towards. And it needs to be continued. We need to support him and help him along the way. But fighting against corruption, diver diversifying the, the economy, making sure that there is growth in the country in order to create the jobs for the Nigerian population, particularly the young people, on the basis of a monetary policy and an exchange rate that is more variable than it was before, I think hopefully will position the country in a much better shape uh, for the future. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the largest uh, economy in, uh, and certainly largest population in Africa. Uh, the rebasing of the Nigerian uh, the economy has, has uh, certainly demonstrated that, and, and I, I hope it, uh, it heads in the right direction. Elliot Gerson, the Aspen, Aspen Institute. I'd like to return to Nicholas, the young man who wrote the letter in the Financial Ta Times that Jane referenced that went viral. About three quarters of Britons under 25 voted to remain, and they have the most at stake. Mm -hmm. Almost as many voted the other way who are retired and who have the least at stake. What specific message do you have for Nicholas and his young contemporaries who seem to be now in a state of national depression? I think many of, many of them went to vote, but many of them actually regret today that they have not for some, for some, for some reason. And, uh, you know, clearly the future of their country is going to belong to them more than, than anybody else. And I hope that they can move in a positive direction. They can be hopefully guided. Uh, in, I say that with trepidation because I think that we are seeing massive changes. And the assumption that somebody is going to guide them uh, is, is maybe very, uh, you know, full of, of vanity in a way. Because I think there is very much a desire of, you know, I want to take my destiny in my own hands. I want to be able to communicate. 
and uh, I, I don't really understand what those intermediaries, how, however uh, democratically elected and representative they're supposed to be, are going to do with my future. So I think we need to ask the right questions, try to find together the right answers. I think for the, for the next couple of years, it's going to be a difficult moment. Uh, that's the time it will take to um, conduct the negotiations and see under what terms uh, the country uh, withdraws, if it, if it does, as, as presumably it will, uh, and, and whether it will take the direction of Norway, uh, which, as you know, as, as a, an economic arrangement, which requires that, um, which authorizes them to actually transfer goods and services without restrictions, but also requires that they pay their contribution to the European Union and that they open their space to movement of people. That, that would be, probably for those young people, the most com comforting outcome. I'm not sure that it will be perfectly satisfactory to those other at the other end of the age spectrum, because you end up, you know, as, as actually the, uh, the authorities of Norway was telling me uh, 10 days ago, with paying the bill, not having a say on the regulations, enforcing the regulations, and uh, opening new territories. But a la Norway arrangement would be probably the best outcome, uh, both in, in economic terms and in response to the uh, the, the concern of Nicholas and all his friends. Nancy Lazar, what policy advice would you give the leadership of Italy and Spain and, and maybe even France to reduce the odds of a referendum vote uh, in, those, in those countries? I would stick to my meetings and I would say um, put in place the policies that will actually lift the economy that will create demand, that will generate growth, that will create jobs, and that will, you know, bring a bit of an uplifting sentiment around the country. I'm saying that I'm sticking to my knittings because I think that's a really important message. What have we had so far? We've had terrific monetary policy authorities. The central banks have carried the burden very much on their back with little support on the part of fiscal on the part of structural reforms. And I think that, if anything, that should be a strong wake-up call to those authorities to actually drive forward that agenda that we have called the three-pronged approach. Structural reforms, fiscal space used, please, and whatever fiscal policy you have in place, make sure that they're growth-friendly and have the monetary policy in the background to continue to help and support, and that is perfectly legitimate, but it cannot be on its own. So that would be my, my strong recommendations. Turn your country and your economy towards positive, towards demand, towards growth, and make sure that instead of having 10 point something unemployment growth, unemployment rates in those territories, you move the needle in the right direction, you create hope, you generate confidence. I, I can't help underscore positive and hope. Just imagine if the Remain campaign had been based on positive and hope, uh, what the result might have been. Uh, last question. Hello, my name is Ariadne Platero. I am a British citizen, uh, both heartbroken and in mourning. Did you vote? Uh, I am not allowed to vote because I've lived in America for over 14 years and they take away your vote when you've been expat for 14 years in the UK. Um, though I would have clearly voted to remain. Um, my question is, assuming the uh, British 
uh, government does uh, withdraw from Europe, would you expect the European... Assuming the British government... Do, ...does withdraw, does trigger uh, yeah. Article 50. Uh, would, do you expect the European Union to be very harsh, not to say punishing, in their negotiations as a way of dissuading other people in the domino effect that we've been hearing about? Or would you expect any form of compassion? <laughs> you know, I... I, I, I personally don't believe in the, the virtue of punishment in, 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 in many uh, instances. I think that mm. encouraging, supporting uh, people to head in the right direction is probably a lot better. Uh, equally, you know, I recognize the dilemma that the, uh, the European leadership has. Uh, being overly um, chaleureux, warm-hearted, um, on, in, in those negotiations and discussions uh, is certainly not going to help uh, in, in to deal with the risk that is out there, uh, not only of reduced growth, but of potential fragmentation uh, that would result from a contagion effect. So, you know, how they um, find the right equilibrium between being rigorous and being fair is something that I hope is best exemplified at this point in time by the... Um, by Chancellor Merkel, who has gone out, I think, saying there's no need to be nasty uh, with with the uh, the British, and I I'm, I'm I'm almost hesitant when I say the British because when I see what Nicola Sturgeon uh, from Scotland is saying, uh, I'm concerned that we're not even talking about the British. We're talking about very much the English, the Welsh. Um, Ireland is going to be also a big question mark going forward. Uh, but, but I hope that this equilibrium point is going to be sensible enough to not harm unnecessarily uh, and try to, to get a revenge against the, uh, the English and, and others, uh, but also is not going to be, be encouraging for others to, uh, to look for similar situations. So on that note, this is Christine and Xavier's first visit to Aspen. Should we invite them back? Yeah. Christine Lagarde is Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund. She was interviewed at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June by Aspen Institute trustee Jane Harmon. Harmon also directs the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thank you for listening. <laughs>